Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to the first episode of On Cities. I'm Carrie Pennebad, and this show is going to examine the ways the design of our cities shape the quality of our lives. The show is also going to highlight how the built environment influences and inspires creative professionals from a variety of fields. Today, I'm delighted to introduce my first guest, Andres Duani. Andres is an internationally recognized architect and urban designer who for more than four decades has been dedicated to the design of compact, sustainable, walkable cities, way before these ideas became mainstream. He's the co-founder of DPZ Co-Design, an urban design practice that is based in Miami and has designed more than 300 new towns. He's also the co-founder of The New Urbanism, an international planning movement that advocates for the restoration of existing urban centers and towns and the reconfiguration of sprawling suburbs into communities of real neighborhoods and diverse districts. Duani is the co-author of several influential books, including Suburban Nation, The Rise of Sprawl and the Decline of the American Dream, The New Civic Art, Elements of Town Planning, The Smart Growth Manual, Garden Cities, Theory and Practice of Agrarian Urbanism, and most recently, Transect Urbanism. Andres, welcome to On Cities, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for being so careful about setting this up. <laughs> so professional, you've spent so much time trying to get it right. Thank you, Andres. Um, so maybe we could start at the beginning. <laughs> I read that you were born in New York, and so we share that but spent much of your formative years between Cuba and Spain, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, is this the case? And if so, do you think that these early childhood experiences influenced your later thoughts about cities? Well, I was born in New York, but only as, as you would say for the green card. I was back in Cuba in two weeks. I was taken back. Um, and uh, so I grew up in Cuba till I was 10, and I witnessed the, that very interesting revolution. And when we left, we moved to Spain. Uh, so I was in Spain from about age 10 to 24, but I studied in the United States. And at 24, my father said, that's the last dollar you'll see from me. So I didn't go back to Europe for 10 years, and I became very much a, um, a resident of Miami. So where, where were you living in Spain? Barcelona. Barcelona. Yeah. And you were in Havana when you were in Cuba? No, I was in Santiago. In Santiago. My family had been in Santiago, the second city, you know, for... Uh, couple of centuries. And, and were you living in the sort of city centers of these cities? No. Uh, well, my grandfather obviously had a house downtown, but he was a developer. In 1905, he laid out, a, he had studied in France, and he laid out Vista Alegre, which was actually laid out on, on basic houseman lines, you know, great diagonal avenues. And he hired, he had French architects do the buildings, which looked terrific in ruins. Like these uh, wonderful classical buildings, you know, taken over by tropical nature. And then my father, who, um, my, my grandfather took all the best land. Uh, and my, my, my father was, uh, was a post-war developer with much more problematic land. And he did a, a, a vintage of development, which you would say would be the equivalent of Levittown in this country. Hmm. So I had a very traditional grandfather and a modernist 
father as developers. So would these individuals or access to the kind of work that they did, your father and your grandfather, influence you to pursue a career in architecture? Well, you know me, uh, you don't do what your father says. So uh, it's only in retrospect that I realized that he influenced me uh, very much. He thought I would be an engineer, frankly, but that, that didn't work out even for a day. And I, I really did want to be an architect on the second day of college. And I've been passionate ever since. So, uh, he later on, but what I think really rubbed off was a kind of practical streak uh, from from my from him and from my grandfather, and a kind of respect for that we don't work for the we really don't work for a client. We work for the end user. You know, the the person that commissions the town is not the end user. So we look past to the people who will be living there, and actually specifically the very young people, because these towns take easily uh, 10, 20, 30 years to, to, to even become a town. And so when you look at a 10-year-old, they're really 40. So I'm very oriented towards uh, what the very young, what they're like. Well, actually, um, maybe just to, to sort of understand your formal architectural and urban training, um, you went to Princeton in 1971, you graduated, and then I believe a few years later, you received a graduate degree from Yale. Mm -hmm. um, can you just briefly set the scene for what it was like to study architecture and urbanism during that period? Right, right. I think the schools were irrelevant so much. It's always the period that affects the architectural education. And that was a transition year between modernism and postmodernism. And I was absolutely firmly planted. My, my first education was about Le Corbusier and modernism. And by the time I finished, we were doing traditional architecture. So I'm very grateful for that period because it, uh, the professors are very open-minded. They had to be. And as a result, I now like a great range of things. What I find when I travel is that I like I liked a huge proportion of what I see. And most architects who are ideological, either modernists or traditionalists, focus on really a small percentage of what they see. And I love my, I think it was very lucky to have such an open, to be educated in such an open-minded period. It's interesting that you say that because I would argue that a lot of uh, of your followers are, mm -hmm. maybe don't embrace that attitude mm -hmm. in fact. Um, and so, um, I think that they, they might be more uh, kind of focused on one way of looking at things. They certainly do. Uh, they, they certainly are like that. Um, it was necessary. I respect that having a doctrine was necessary to create a movement. You had to have principles, you know, which were actually written in the charter of the new urbanism. There is a lot of technique that had to be developed. And there's doctrine uh, in order to, you know, every... Every modernist have that, uh, classicists have that. But now I think it's hardened and it's become less flexible. It's not flexible enough for the very difficult 21st century that we're facing. Mm -hmm. And uh, yes, but I'm, I would say that they would say, they would think that I'm untrustworthy, that I like too many things, mm -hmm. you know? I'm too open-minded uh, for them. and. I like things that are often anti-urban. Mm. You know, I, I enjoy the old Las Vegas, for example, uh, very much. I understand suburbia and I sympathize with it. You know, it's not all about density and transit, you know, which is what in some ways it's been reduced to. 
Well, actually, I think we're going to be getting to some of these um, thoughts in just a bit. But to kind of lay the groundwork for mm-hmm. this, I uh, you came to Miami, and so we're sitting here in your offices. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you came to Miami in the late 1970s, right. and it can be said that it was a very different place than mm-hmm. what yes. Miami is today. Yes. Um, and then when you look at your career, it can be argued that maybe your most important project um, was the design for the master plan of Seaside in the mm-hmm. Florida Panhandle. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you briefly tell us how Seaside came to be? Well, uh, coming to Miami, we're not from Miami. People assume that my being Cuban, I grew up in Miami, but as I said, it was Spain. But we graduated, Liz and I graduated in the recession of, of 74, which was dismal, actually much worse in 2008. And there were no jobs in the Northeast, and but there were jobs in Florida, because there always are, you know, because there are always uh, a great number of Latin American refugees. The other jobs were in Texas. And uh, I, we just came by. I was on my way to Houston. With, you know, that was really the most, uh, the one place that I was surviving at the time economically. But I uh, came to see my grandmother and stayed. You know, it was, it was, I felt very, a great deal of sympathy for the tropic, for the tropics, even though I didn't grow up here. Barcelona, by the way, is a lot colder than people imagine. It's really a European city, almost a Northern European city. But the sympathy that I found for the architecture of warmth, of sunlight, of open space, of breeze, was is really what I, rem- I mean, it's extremely romantic relationship to heat. And I could never, I've never been able to practice properly up north. It's just, you know, that cold stuff, the cozy small places with the fireplace, that's not for me, you know. And so I just stayed here. Uh, Liz and I stayed here. She's from Pennsylvania. We had the same education. And we were married here. And then Seaside was a natural evolution. It's a project that came to us when we were modernists. And during the design process, it became traditionalist. When, when you say you were modernist, I mean, I should say that prior to forming DPZ, you had also established mm-hmm. um, Architectonica, yes. which is a, another internationally recognized firm today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then I guess you parted ways. Mm-hmm. And is that parting due to different um, ideas? You, you talked about modernism versus traditionalism. Um, well, Architectonica was not, um, was not a functionalist firm in the sense that was not a functionalist architecture in the sense that, for example, the modernism of the Northeast that came from Germany. Architectonica was, uh, I would say, the genetic material for their modernism came from Brazil. It was the second it came, it went to Brazil. There was terrific influence and terrific modernism there, and then traveled up the Caribbean to Miami. So it wasn't, it was not, I was, we were very sympathetic with uh with what was going on there but frankly doing big condominiums was not urbanism and after you've had a few tall buildings built and photographed the fun is over while you know when you sort of lay out a town and you have three decades of construction to look forward to it's incredibly more interesting Mm -hmm. and we just we we immediately recognized that urbanism now the traditionalism came in because we that is what sells in uh you know we didn't we don't we didn't have clients we had customers i think that's a very important distinction the people who move into our towns we don't meet 
you know, they come in with their preconceptions, their cultural preconceptions. And um, at that time, they were very much, as they still are, enamored with traditional architecture. What we introduced, we left that alone. We improved the quality. But we left that alone. And what we really introduced was a, a walkable, diverse community, which was um, of the kind that preceded suburban sprawl. So, Because it's interesting that you say this, but somehow I always understood your interest in traditional architecture to be inextricably linked to the sort of compact urban patterns that you're producing. But you're saying that you accepted traditional architecture more because more from a marketing standpoint? I mean, our codes always allow modernist architecture. Uh, what it doesn't code style, it codes frontage, you know, how the building meets the street, it co codes diversity, it codes massing. If you look at the early buildings of Seaside, I mean, there was Steve Hall, Machado Silvetti, Deborah Burke. I mean, there were there are modernist buildings, Walter Chatham, et cetera. But the fact is, even today, like in our most modernist, um, let's say, open, open, uh, our weakest codes that allow virtually everything, modernism accounts for about 10 or 15% at the most. It's just what the market requires. And remember, we have no contact with the people who move into our towns. We can't bring them forward. We can't educate them. We have no direct contact. They look at something, they see what's this, and if they don't recognize it as their vision of life, they will. There's plenty other. There are plenty of other things for sale. So, it's, so your interest in seaside, you know following uh, your career at Architectonica, your brief but successful career uh, with Architectonica, and then the forming of DPZ, then um, Seaside came on pretty early, um, and uh, and you met Robert Davis, mm -hmm. um, and together you, you, well, okay. you developed... Uh, so Architectonica was successful, and modern, but they were doing condominiums. And um, uh, tall buildings have always been acceptable to uh to the american market okay as modern as modern buildings it's when seaside came in it was a walkable town primarily of houses that modernism has a harder time and that still holds now lately our last few projects there has been a shift and there is much more interest particularly in a kind of conservative modernism which i would say something like 1950. you know not the frank gary you know, you can't afford to build houses like that. But the simple, simple, almost minimalist boxes, like the the appeal of Marfa, Texas, you know, the the Mimo revival here in Miami. Frankly, the sliding glass door, uh, which used to be the very symbol of what you didn't want, the very symbol of low-end architecture is now highly desirable. You know, the great wall, the great open light, the flat roof. And so it's moving again. And the market is there now for modernism, frankly. Uh, it's still, it's still, like I said, perhaps it's gone from 15% of the potential residents and buyers to, let us say, 40%, which is very substantial. But it's, it's definitely back. And uh, But my education, my first education, which was about Le Corbusier and Mies and so forth, I mean, I'm perfectly equipped to design that way. It wasn't that I disliked it. It was that it was just not marketable, and now it is. So, uh, well, actually, going um, maybe maybe dwelling a little further on that early period um, in the early '90s, 
you joined a group of like-minded individuals to establish mm-hmm. um, the new urbanism. And it can be argued that today you are the de facto leader of this movement, both for your built work and for your theories. Um, of course, yours and Liz's. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those in the audience who may not have heard of the new urbanism, how would you define it? The new urbanism is a movement that is dedicated to, okay, at the most abstract level, it's a non-ideological movement that says whatever works best in the long run, in the long run. Now, what works best in the short run is Walmart. What works best in the short run is the highways with lots of lanes. That's the short run. But in the long run, they plug up, the Walmarts destroy destroy jobs, etc. In the long run, what, which is the only thing that's interesting in urbanism, in the long run, what's interest, what what uh, what works best is traditional walkable architecture. You know, it lasts longer. It can be modified more easily. Uh, walking is, uh, I think, an absolute human right. Most people, about half of Americans, can't afford a car, or at least can't uh, can't drive. And so, um, it's a very robust platform to enter the 21st century as things get difficult. You know, when gasoline gets expensive, when maybe the delivery delivery becomes problematic of even food, you know, these uh, the traditional um, the traditional urbanism, uh, the towns and villages are much more robust. They're much more adaptable to difficult times. So at the core of the movement is the is the belief in the making of compact Yes. Pedestrian oriented, transit diverse. friendly. Yes, transit we may not be able to afford. <laughs> transit we may, if we confront the difficulty of getting a rail project permitted and uh, the expenses and the, wear, uh, the wearing out of the buses and so forth, there's nothing. What we're designing now, we're, today we're designing for walking, bicycles, and small electric vehicles, ex golf carts. And actually, that's we design for the radius of them and not for the car. And actually, frankly, not necessarily for the light rail that we used to design for before. Because it's expensive to build light rail. And uh, I don't think we're going to have the money. Remember, we're not speaking about the present. Okay, this is not, I'm not acting like an architect that delivers a building within five years. An urbanist delivers the town within 35 years. When you say we don't have the money, are you referencing a public, the public. American, yes. an American condition or yes, the public. American reality? The American reality is that we're running, well, we've never been particularly enamored of public transit, but we're also the, it's very, we don't, we don't seem to want to invest in it. And I know theoretically it's the best way to go environmentally and it's more just, but you know, you've got to, when in, in my field, uh, there's very little theory. You know, you have to see, can I get it done? And so we're we're terrific realists, and it's it's incredibly difficult to build rail transit in most places. But it is very easy to get people to bicycle today, and electric bikes are fantastic. And the golf carts now, you know, with golf carts technology, uh, they've, they've redesigned them to be dignified. You don't look like an idiot in a golf cart you know, anymore. They're quite good looking. And they're now allowed on streets, even in Miami, um, as you've as you've probably seen. Uh, I mean, my partner in in Arquitectonica, Bernardo Fort Brescia, he moves around Miami in a golf, in a, essentially a, a large golf cart. It's not called that. It's called an EV, a neighborhood electric vehicle. 
And uh, so we design, we think that's the transportation of the future, and we design for that. Certainly not for cars, and certainly not for uh, public transit. Or not certainly not. We would, if anybody would pay for public transit, be happy to take it. But it's it's too long a wait. What about initiatives like the Bright Line, for instance, or Richard Brandon's work, or um, or for example, a call to action? I mean, if we really do believe that public transit mm-hmm. has proven to be the more equitable means mm-hmm. of transportation, mm-hmm. the more environmentally sound way, um, what what can be done? I mean, you know, well, it sounds like it there's nothing that, it is like, definitely. that nothing can be done to no, advance No, no, it that. can, but it can be done the old way. You know, you know, the people who built the transit, uh, the, the people who built the railways and the people who built the streetcars was to open up land for development. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's what paid for it. Like the New York subways were private ventures. The London Underground was private ventures to open up land for development. What the Bright Line does in Florida, and it's absolutely terrific, it's opening up a whole series of potential sites for new towns that are going to pay for it. So it's actually driven by the private sector. The private sector will drive transit, but no one, but retrofitting the existing cities, I suppose, is what I'm referring to. And the retrofitting of cities with transit has to be done with public funding. It's very difficult to, I mean, we have, Miami is very, very well equipped with public transit. We have a very early uh, uh, light rail system. We have a permeating bus system with brand new buses. I mean, Miami is a really good performer, but would, yet would people you see prefer that? cars. Does, I'm surprised because what? oftentimes the, you know, people critique heavily, let's say the fact that Miami lacks oh. uh, connectivity, it lacks oh. public transit. The bus system is really serving, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my, I mean, it, it it arguably could serve a majority, but um, but most people still drive in their cars. Yes. So can you elaborate oh, a little yes. bit on well, what I you can mean by speak, that? I can speak very well from Miami, okay? First of all, Miami had uh, was very early on light rail, a transit. In fact, we're one of the two great separated uh, transit built in the 70s, which is our elevated and uh, Washington's underground. Those were simultaneous. And there are only two like that. We were first. Every avenue in Miami, which is every seven blocks, has buses on it. And and by the way, we have an open grid. Miami is not a bunch of cul-de-sacs like Orange County, California. Miami is an open grid, and you don't have to stand very long on any avenue to see a bus Constantly. I'm always behind a bus when I drive. The problem is the last mile or the last half mile is a misery of walking. Okay. Yes, there are sidewalks, but it's still a horrible experience. So it's really the last mile. One of the things that always astonishes me too is how handsome and new Miami buses are. You know, they're really nice. They're electrical. There's, there's nothing wrong with them. It's that it's the, it's once you, we, once you get off the bus, it's the walk to your destination that's a misery. And I think that's the problem. And of course, that can be retrofitted with Miami 21. But I'd like to say a couple of things about Miami. Miami has a very hard urban boundary because of the Everglades. We're tight, we're very dense, and we have a great number of walkable town centers, you know, Coral Gable, South Miami, uh, Coconut Grove, um, Merrick Park, et cetera. Uh, compared to, to modern suburbia like Orlando or even the way Tampa has developed, which are later than Miami, we have, I think we perform very well, very well in terms. And there's another thing too, Miami is, is, is a, it's, it's a very diverse city. It has, um, Liz was reading the other day that 40% of our population in Dade County was born elsewhere, 40%. 
And uh, of course, that's tremendous. It means that it's a very energetic city because you know the immigrant come here to work, comes here to work. It's a it's a very very it's a place with a great deal of vitality, and I don't understand why its reputation isn't better, because of so many things that count: the transit, the diversity, the uh, we just lost affordability, unfortunately. Yeah, we lost. But essentially, it it is a city that until very recently used to be very affordable. Yeah, and perhaps in 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 thinking about affordability, uh, one one question that arises is that of housing. Yeah, um, and uh, you our know, projects, sort of, I have to say, our projects become very expensive. Yeah, or or maybe the fact that we have very few housing models in Miami. We sort of have the detached single family residential, which is still predominant, yeah. and then we have the high rise condominium, yeah. and we lack uh, this kind of middle ground of models, which your work has advocated for for quite some time. Well, the Miami Twenty One Code, but the problem is that it's growing. Florida is growing at, at the rate of four hundred thousand people a year, and. Uh, Whatever is affordable becomes unaffordable very quickly. You know, the, the, this this area uh, just around my office is very affordable. They're little single story duplexes. I found out the other day that miserable little one and a half bedroom uh, duplexes are two thousand dollars a month, just because of scarcity. And it's very hard to recruit young people to come to Miami because they can't. Find, they know they'll never end up being able to afford a dwelling. It's a, it's 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 a terrible problem affordability terrible problem. Well, when we come back, we're going to take a short break. Um, but when we return, I think we're going to be able to um, uh, tackle some of these uh, difficult questions and listen to some of your current initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the uh, for the design of the future of the yeah. sustainable city, so we're going to take a short break and please come back let's to come back, listen. Let's come back to affordability. Yes. We're not done with that. Yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. We'll take a short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. 
Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back. You're listening to On Cities, and I'm here with my first guest, Andres Duani. Andres, right before the break, we were um, touching upon the question of affordability Mm -hmm. in a city like Miami. But of course, this is a subject that impacts many cities throughout the country. And perhaps you could uh, talk a little bit more about how the design of our cities could help with the challenges of affordability that we're finding in our own city today. Yeah, right. Well, uh, as it happens, that is very much what I'm into now, the affordability. Um, Our firm transitioned to four young partners uh, a few years ago, and they assigned me, they gave me a wonderful assignment, which says, do research and development. Don't do projects, do research and development about what you think are the most important issues. And I started, of course, with, you know, green architecture, green urbanism, adaptation, and so forth. And then I realized that there was a very important field, but it was also full of great talent, really quite being pursued. And that furthermore, the political reality is that the crisis is off. The real crisis is off by four decades. You know, it's the 2060 and so forth, that things really get bad. I said, well, the real crisis now, the immediate greatest crisis that we have immediately today, yesterday, last year, is affordability and housing. So I switched to the affordability issue. And it took me a while to find what the technology was. One is, why aren't small developers who have much less overhead, why aren't they active? What can we do to make their life easier? You know, the kind of people that moved into Soho back in the 60s or Miami Beach in the 80s and took the old buildings that conventional developers don't, developers don't want to touch. And we began an initiative called Lean Urbanism, which enables and it, tra- it educates young developers to do small projects that large developers won't touch. There's an awful lot of stuff that can be renovated. Uh, the second thing we did is we found out that 28% of the affordable housing in this country is mobile homes, and which is an astonishing, considering that they're not subsidized, is an astonishing number. And why aren't there more? And the reason is that they're not culturally acceptable. They're technically, they're better and better all the time, technically. The old mobile home that gets blown away and so forth and it becomes decrepit, that's prior to the 1974 HUD code. The mobile homes now are durable. I'm not saying they're beautifully designed, but they're very durable and they're a bargain but you can't get zoning for them because they're 
there's a cultural problem with him. And we began to address the mobile home. And frankly, I have spent three, three years in the mobile home industry in the bowels of the beast. And we've designed mobile homes that actually are really quite unbelievably cool. So cool that they're bought by people who have a choice. You know, they have a choice to live in a, in a very cool condo and they'll move into a mobile home. It's a very interesting but separate topic, this affordability. But I also want to call attention to one thing. Affordability is uh, there are a dozen cities that have an affordability crisis, but 90% of the American cities need more people, need, need, need more expensive housing for people who actually pay the taxes. So I think there's two Americas here, and we have to deal with both. One is how do we make the huge abandonment of the wonderful, wonderful Rust Belt cities or the the thousand towns of the Midwest, you know, that have houses there waiting to be inhabited and renovated. How do we make that valuable? How can we get some of the affordable housing, the people who need affordable housing to move out into the hinterland, to move into Buffalo, to move into Cleveland, to move into the into the small towns of the Midwest? That's one agenda. And then the other is the cities that are popular. How do we lower the cost of construction and particularly the cost of permitting? It's so difficult to get permits to build that people give up and the market is really not operating. There's there are too many, too many impediments. So it's two sides. People always focus. Well, San Francisco doesn't have an affordable housing. Miami doesn't have an affordable housing. Well, you know what? Cleveland and Buffalo don't have enough people who actually pay taxes. So they're both. I want to call attention to both problems. And we are working on both. And we have two entirely different agendas. And then there is the really, really, really poor people who really want to own something and they won't be able to. But the mobile home industry is really waiting, waiting for excellence. They've figured out how to actually build inexpensively what they haven't figured out is how to build places of great beauty and dignity. And that's what we're working on. And that's actually what excites me the most. So when you speak about the mobile home designs, um, are you, do you always think about them in light of, um, let's say, the community, the mobile home community? Because mm-hmm. it could be argued that the urbanism of the mobile home community mm-hmm. goes against everything mm-hmm. that the new urbanism, right. urbanism stands for. Yeah. So is part of your study to mm-hmm. come up with alternate uh, models for the yes. urbanism of these mobile parks? Or is it also about uh, inserting these mobile homes into, let's say, infill mm-hmm. um you know, downtowns, uh, mm-hmm. which again, at that point mm-hmm. would involve changes in zoning and a yeah. number of things. So is it both? Uh, it's, 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 it's all of them. There's a tremendous movement now for what are called ADUs, uh, which are accessory, accessory dwelling units that are added to backyards. And they are often prefabricated in the same way that mobile homes are. I mean, they're lifted by cranes to the backyard. But it's the same kind of prefabrication industry. And many people are working on it and being very successful. I think California has a categorical um, uh, per- permission to build an ADU in any house. Uh, the fact that more aren't happening, there's another reason for that. But let's say that, that there's great well, What progress. is that reason? Why do you think that There more- are a couple of reasons. First of all, it, sometimes the idea is tied to additional parking that can't be provided. It just doesn't fit. 
The other thing is, of course, is the nimbyism of the neighbors. You know, it isn't that the, the legislation is there, but the neighbors can still complain to the local council because they're afraid. But the third thing is this, that already most backyards in small lots are already filled up with family rooms and so forth. The future of ADUs is actually in the front setback of buildings. In the front setback, the 25-foot setback, which is standard issue for tens, hundreds of millions of houses in this country, is where a wonderful-looking building can go in the front setback. The rear setback is already full. That's you know when you look at an aerial photograph, you'll see that there's no room there. So people aren't doing that now. Of course, the political problem of doing something in the front yard is something that has to be overcome and has to be demonstrated by excellent projects. So that's one agenda, the ADU. But I'm speaking about people who have families with three you know three bedroom units, etc. And it's it's I just want to say this, that it is, there are, part of the problem is that really good designers won't touch it. They won't touch the mobile home, you know? And so it's it falls in the hands of rather mediocre designers that, and the stuff is ugly, although it's very well built, actually, you wouldn't know it because it's so ugly. And so people say, we're not going to give you zoning. So again, we're trying to transcend the cultural problem of the mobile home, while enjoying the technical success of the mobile home industry. The mobile home industry is very, very uh, successful in lowering the cost. But as I said, they're very unsuccessful politically. And that's that's actually what I'm most passionate about at this moment, is the, how can we turn... And I have, I have some preliminary success stories that are almost scary. Like people say, oh, is, is that a mobile home? Let me overpay you for it. They will actually... They actually bid for the damn things. I mean, it's amazing. And uh, how much do one of these mobile homes that you've designed cost? Okay, so and what would it take to, for example, implement them in a city like Miami? Okay, two things about the mobile home. Mobile homes can be delivered at the factory door, as they say, for sixty dollars a square foot. Let us say that um, site-built house is two hundred dollars a square foot. That's a hundred and forty. That's being conservative, depending very upon what part of the Very conservative. <laughs> very conservative. So you have something at sixty dollars a square foot, and then something at one at, at two hundred. It's a hundred and sixty dollars square foot difference. So what we do is we add forty dollars a square foot to the mobile home. So it's a hundred a foot. Imagine it's almost doubling the available budget, but it's still a hundred under the the site built house. So it's incredibly inexpensive. You know, you talk about the missing middle. There's a missing affordability. This country produces stuff at $60 a square foot and $200 and above. What happened to the 140? That is where the action is. But they have to be designed to fit into existing cities, to fit into backyards. Do you know where they're going to go? There are so many abandoned parking lots in America. There are millions of, of, of unused parking spaces as the big box retail uh, closes, you know, those those parking lots, they're already drained. They don't have environmental problem because nature has been destroyed already. And people are accustomed to looking at something which is not which is not nature. So there's very little opposition or there's less opposition. And you can you can lay out on these parking lots, these empty parking lots, what we call gray fields. You know, those brown fields are the polluted areas. Gray fields are the abandoned parking lots. 
And the great thing is, you know, those parking lots, they're footings. The footings are there because they were designed for things with wheels. So it's even less expensive to build than a parking lot. You don't tear up the parking lot. You use the parking lot. And they have water. They have electrical. They have sewer. They're perfect sites for affordable housing. And, and you know, as you know, retail is uh, what they call bricks and mortar retail is closing. You want to know where the sites are for this? Look up the Sears. Where are the Sears stores? Just Google Sears. They're all available sites. Now, what do you put on them? Most people just knock out the Sears stores and tear up the parking lot. Well, that's idiotic because you're, you're actually getting rid of these fantastic assets. Now, the other thing is taking making holes in the roof of the big box retailers. You know, these big boxes, they're in a 30-foot grid. Make a hole and call it a courtyard and then build a house around it. So all that abandonment of the commercial strip is fantastic, fantastic. Uh, and because the commercial strips are on rather large arterials, the traffic impact is already accommodated. You're not, you know, you're not blowing out an existing residential street. I, you know, I would say that anybody who's studying architecture now is facing that number one crisis, and there's a number one solution which is all that real estate in the abandoned big boxes. I mean, it really is exciting. It's revolutionary, this kind of thing. Yeah, I think um, actually, you know, we're, we're, talk, we're discussing right now the sort of challenges of affordability, and you've put on the table a number of physical, you mm -hmm. know, designs that could uh impact or make segue of yeah. course this would have to be um followed by public policy and legislation that would right. permit that to happen right. and that tends to be quite slow moving particularly yes. in a city like ours um and i say ours because we're both yeah. in miami yeah. um, but maybe we could also talk about uh, a leading challenge facing urbanism today in miami which is the question of climate change it's been argued that miami's uh really at ground zero of rising mm -hmm. seas mm -hmm. so i was curious since you're talking about your current initiative and your current focus, how your work has uh, changed in response, if any, in response to the kind of rising threat of, of climate change? <clears throat> in terms of climate change, I spoke about the initiatives that I was personally interested in, but my partner, Elizabeth Butter-Zeberg, who's a professor, as you know, as you are, at the University of Miami, and who is uh, my wife, incidentally, and I listened to her on the phone. <laughs> you know, we share the same acoustic environment. And she really is the expert on sea level rise. And uh, I know what she's thinking, but I think that really is her, her mm -hmm. purview. And she is committed to Miami, enormously committed to Miami. And I think she's got a whole declension of solutions about how do you deal with a city like Miami? Uh, which is way beyond what I can speak about, but that yeah. really is hers. Well, I, I think that what you've uh, positioned is uh, for me to invite Liz uh, for a future episode. Um, you know, she does lead the urban design program at the University of Miami School of Architecture. And, and yeah. it is true, she teaches courses and she has a lot to say yes. about this. And at least my own conversations with her, she speaks a, a great deal about mm -hmm. um, adaptation, adaptation and mitigation, which in a way does dovetail with what you just yeah. said, because in trying to solve the affordability, uh, the question of affordability, you also are looking at how to adapt our current urban environments. Yeah. Um, and so maybe if we return to that, as we come to sort of the last 10 minutes or so of the interview, um, if we return to that, 
can you say something about the post-pandemic city? Because there's been a lot of conversation mm -hmm. about, you know, we've been talking about transportation. We've mm -hmm. been talking about um, the abandonment of, mm -hmm. uh, let's say, or the reuse of, of parking lots to address affordable mm -hmm. housing. Um, we've talked about compact walkable mm -hmm. cities, but mm -hmm. there's been a lot of discussions mm -hmm. lately that the post-pandemic city will return to a more decentralized city yeah. because the greatest a change that has occurred uh, in our world, I would argue, although it'd be interesting to hear what you have to say, mm -hmm. um, is how we work. Yeah. So now we can work remotely yes. from different places, yes. Yes. Uh, which then does that allow us to rethink the way we move in between our work and our home? Yeah. Um, can you say something about the sort of post-pandemic city? Yes, yes. Actually, that was not part of my research. But, you know, these towns that are being built as we speak, uh, they very quickly responded to the situation. How are we going to maintain sales during the pandemic? Okay. So I was actually lucky enough to be funded by one of them to study this issue. Like, what should our housing be like? And I began by studying the... Um, Spanish flu of 1918, which was the last time something like this occurred. And this is what I discovered. In those days, things were very clear because there were no vaccines. There was no, there was no medicine for them. You, you, you simply died unless you went outdoors. Okay. The only solution they had, you can see it in the photographs, was sunlight and fresh air. That was the only cure sunlight and fresh air. And many interesting things happened. One of them was the open air schools, uh, the single the single loaded corridors that were outside instead of inside that came with modernism. Uh, there was a lot, modernism came in when they removed the ornament, you know, because the viruses could live in the ornament. So they actually simplified and the metal furniture, stuffed furniture, they stopped making it because you know, the bugs could live in the, in, the, in the stuffing and in the fabrics and so forth. So modernism came in as part of the agenda of dealing with that tremendous crisis. But here's the interesting thing. Uh, you know, people often say, well, people moved to Miami with air conditioning when air conditioning finally came in. Not so. People moved to Miami in the 1920s. Coral Gables was the largest new town in the world in the 1920s. That was from the 20s in Miami, Palm Beach. John Nolan, the great planner of the time, laid out almost 30 new towns in Florida, well before air conditioning. And if you look at the advertisements, it was what they continue were saying, and all the illustrations were about being outdoors. The same thing happened in Los Angeles. <clears throat> if you look at a lithograph of Los Angeles in 1920, it's a dump. Okay, six years later, it was Hollywood. The, the most marvelous, uh, interesting city possibly in the world. They moved from San Francisco, which was the only action, to L.A. The move south opened up uh, the living outdoors. What the pandemic did, for, uh, for we who are urbanists, we're very interested in the design of the public realm, which is essentially outdoors, you know, the streets, the sidewalks, the porches, the courtyards. What the pandemic really did for an urbanist is re, re, revalidate the public realm. You know, if you're going to design a backyard, it shouldn't just be an ornamental thing. It should be a courtyard that's private, you know, that you can really use. If you're going to make a restaurant, make take, take the sidewalk seriously. You know, don't just put a couple of tables out there. Design it from the beginning. If you're going to have a building, have a roof garden 
you know, for example, I think the Google headquarters or the Facebook headquarters is all about the roof, you know, the Frank Gehry building. So it revitalized the roof, it revitalized the public square, it revitalized the porch, it revitalized the courtyard. And these were was were, were essential to architecture, and now they're even we've we've been reminded. And yes, I think it's gonna have a big beneficial effect. Now there's something that's never talked about. When when the pandemic occurred, Liz and I basically ruined our living room and dining room by putting computers and books in them. Working at home is a disaster for a conventional house. But I have a neighbor down the street who happened to have a superbly elegant tall ceiling garage. And she moved into her garage. And her garage was like a loft. We'd go visit her and she had turned it into an office and it was like a New York loft. So one of the things that I'd like to bring everybody's attention to Garages that the garages of the houses, which we now think are terrible places, are actually the most interesting part of the house in the future. And they should be they should be designed as future work lofts. Don't do a live work unit. Just simply design the garages that are temporarily used for parking cars, but think of them as a future loft. Make them taller, make them wider, give them great windows. And that is where I think a lot of the action in a single family house will be, which is the potential it, over time, as the automobiles recede, because, you know, for all sorts of good environmental reasons, as the automobiles recede, the garage becomes the essential part of the house, the most interesting part of the house, and the mixed use part. And, uh, and yeah, as you can it, see, it, I'm excited about the garage now. And well, to tell you how much we've moved, the garage used to be the worst part of the new urbanism. We would always put it back in the alley. And the designs that I do now have the garage right in front as actually uh, um, the workplace. Yeah, I, I think in, in both talking about the questions of affordability and addressing the question of the post-pandemic city, your responses, Andres, were squarely focused, although you highlighted the importance of the public realm, which is undeniable. It seems like really your current focus is really on rethinking um housing yeah rethinking housing right, right. Um, rethinking housing yes. yes because you in answering the question of the post-pandemic mm. city you did go mm. down to the increment of the individual lot yes. and the individual dwelling yes. yeah and what i heard in your response was maybe rethinking some of those models uh, perhaps even thinking about them as compounds or compartmentalized yes. assemblies yes, yeah. where you could offer a variety of uses yeah. um, so that you can live and work in different ways yeah um so, by the way the traditional city works very well in a post-pandemic sense, with the walkable sidewalks and so forth. But the really radical change is going to be in the single-family house and what that becomes, you know, as you as you really get serious about working at home. That is absolutely revolutionary. And by the way, bringing the family back in, you know, um, affordable housing for the young people, well, you don't have a problem if you're allowed to build a compound. You know, instead of a McMansion with four bedrooms and God knows how many bathrooms and everything, and everybody sharing the same hallway and, you know, upsetting everybody with lack of privacy, why can't you design four casitas, four small houses, with exactly the same program, exactly the same number of bedrooms, exactly the same number of bathrooms, parking and everything, but disaggregated. Instead of building one big lump on the in the middle of the of the of the site you basically spread out a small hamlet uh, to your design, you know, for your mother, grandmother, daughter. Yeah. Uh, Somehow, and by the way, a caregiver. 
also don't forget that the old folks should actually stay at home. Well, actually, somehow returning to a multi-generational model, it yeah. seems, um, which uh, ties back to more Latin American yes. uh, models than maybe even yeah. North American models, um, yes, yes. which might bring a f- full All, circle. Although the, the the rancho in the West was uh, oh, yeah. was a compound. Oh, that's a good yeah. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Um, well, you know, we're coming to the end of the interview and. Um, in in conclusion, I I wanted to ask one question of each of my guests because I believe it is important to have examples that one references when we think of what what is a great city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm asking each of my guests a simple and pretty straightforward question: yeah, yeah. Is that what would you say is your favorite city and why? Actually, I've been asked that before, as you can imagine. Uh, uh, I have a clear answer. The the best model for a city, and my favorite city at the moment, is Charleston, South Carolina. And the reason is that every city has a public realm and a private realm. For example, let's take a wonderful city like Paris. The public realm is delightful, the avenues, the gardens, and so forth. But the private realm is miserable. It's dark and wet. Suburbia has a beautiful private realm, a terrible public realm. Charleston has them in balance. And uh, Charleston has streets that are as good as any city and houses and yards that are as good as any city. It's just the best balance, public and private. Okay, that means a, a, a visit to Charleston. So mm-hmm. I want you, I want to thank you for listening to On Cities on the Voice America Variety Channel. Um, I would love for you to tune in next week when we're going to be speaking with Diana Lynn, the author of the book Brave New Home, as she discusses the future of housing in America, which mm-hmm. I think will be mm-hmm. a wonderful compliment to what Andres has been talking about. Please follow us on the On Cities podcast on Instagram. And I look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks again, Andres, for a provocative comment conversation. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebod. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 